Albert Einstein once quipped, the most important question is whether the universe is friendly or not. I've been thinking a lot about this question. It's a question about homecoming in light of our very troubled world. Now, this is a strange home we inhabit. It is full of so much to be grateful for, remarkable beauty, incredible potential, love so strong that it surprises us and consumes us. And yet it is also a place of tremendous hostility, unfairness, violence, and pain. Maggie Smith wrote a beautiful poem called Good Bones, and it captures the heart of this paradox. Here is an edited excerpt. The world, she writes, is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every kind stranger, there is one who would break you, though I keep this from my children. Beyond poetry, religion has attempted with, I think, fairly mixed results to wrestle with this most important question. Theologians have come up with entire fields of study and fancy words like theodicy, the study of suffering, and honeurology, the study of evil. Foundational scriptures and mythology seek to explain it with stories like the fall of Adam and Eve in the perfect Eden, story told in Christian, Jewish, and Islamic texts. Spoiled by human disobedience, the perfect world becomes a sinful place. The physical world forever tainted and inferior to the spiritual realm. Humanity is stuck, waiting for deliverance for something better. Unanswered, of course, is how such an ancient and innocuous transgression justifies such a world full of continued and profound suffering. It feels unfair and inconsistent for a loving God and an all-powerful God to allow this to happen, to not forgive and to help. Buddhism, too, sees the world as innately full of suffering. It is the first noble truth. The essence of the Buddha's teachings revolve around how to address and avoid this suffering that is inherent. Through education and training and practice, we can find happiness in a world that without great effort and the Buddha's profound wisdom could innately lead us to unhappiness. Now, some religions have gotten creative. Gnosticism, an ancient branch of Christianity, explained evil by suggesting the world and humanity within it were actually created by an evil imposter god. That was why the world was so full of suffering. But the imposter could not create us without implanting within us some spark of true divinity. And when the true and virtuous god figured out what had happened, he sent his son to save us and activate the spark of true divinity within us. And that is how the story went. Many earth-centered and indigenous traditions alternatively celebrate the natural world, 
seeing the earth as a sacred place that cares for us, that looks out for us, that gives us life. Many modern pagans resonate with the concept, concepts like the Gaia hypothesis, the idea that the earth loves us like a mother and that its mechanisms innately support and preserve life. Yet others believe it is the opposite and suggest instead the Medea hypothesis, which is based on the ancient myth of Medea who murders her own children. These thinkers point to a universe hostile to life and evidence of life self-destructing across the centuries, the millennia, not unlike our current climate change crisis. Regardless of what the theologians and thinkers say, we all know that this tension of whether the universe is friendly or not, we all know it because we can feel it, the tension between the world's beauty and goodness and hostility. We feel the pain of the world because we know what that feels like. It is raw and chaotic and relentless. We know it in the unexpected diagnosis. It is in the long and cruel descent of age. It is in the partner's betrayal, the boss's abuse, the feeling of being trapped in one's life without an end in sight. It's a turning on the news and hearing of another tragedy and wondering how we let it happen again. It is not having health care and choosing between food and medicine, maybe for our children. It is a feeling of existential dread for our democracy and of all the lying and the greediness and the ambivalence that seem to exist in this world for other people's suffering. If this was all life was, we would know that we were in some form of hell. Yet, of course, there are glimpses of heaven, too. We see it in the beauty of nature in places like Central Park right across the street, in the clouds as the sun set, profound silence of night, the intricacy of cellular biology and the majesty of whales. We know what love is, our partners and friends, our parents and our children, our animal companions. We know that there's a desire innate within us for connection and belonging and that that feeling transcends reason and understanding. We see it in the brave sacrifice of those who serve their countries. We see it in the small, unnecessary kindnesses of strangers who help other strangers. We see it in those who devote their lives to the common good. I think reconciling these two competing, deeply human experiences is part of what it means to make a home and allow us to experience homecoming. Whether we like it or not, this is the place we live, all of us, the place we must call home. There is no other option, no other universe. So how do we make a home in a place like this with people like this? This past summer, I heard a story that made me think. You may have heard the right wing chant, let's go, Brandon. It originated during a NASCAR race when the announcers mistakenly 
said the crowd was cheering, let's go Brandon. And this was reasonable because the driver, Brandon Brown, had just won the race. But the announcer had misheard. The crowd had gotten political, and what the crowd was chanting is something I can't say here in worship. Think blank Joe Biden, and the blank starts with an F. Why people were chanting such vulgarities at a sporting event, I don't know. But when the right wing found out about this goof, they seized on Let's Go Brandon and plastered it everywhere. It was like an inside secret joke that masks something you know you shouldn't say out loud, but want to anyways, and you can laugh with your friends about it. I've seen Let's Go Brandon on shirts and hats, homes and cars and billboards. It's meanness masquerading as a joke, a common tactic to minimize and excuse menacing behavior. If this summer a story broke of a boy named Brandon who experienced it very differently. Brandon is a nine-year-old from Minnesota, black and autistic. Brandon had always struggled with self-confidence and fitting in, with being afraid and anxious of new things. He would worry about whether he could do things as well as others, as his siblings, and would often hesitate to jump into new situations. When his dad would invite him to go swimming, he would worry that he would forget how to swim, and the water might be too cold and he might drown. When he spoke, sometimes he stuttered and worried that he might say the words wrong and that people might laugh at him. When his brother, a very good soccer player, would invite him to play with him, he would worry the other kids wouldn't like him, wouldn't pass the ball to him, or he might get hurt and the ball came at him too fast. But not too long ago, he and his family were visiting Texas. One day they were staring, staying at an RV park, and Brandon's parents noticed a difference in Brandon. Normally he was quiet and he was shy, but suddenly Brandon was filled with confidence, smiling widely, chatting up strangers, and even displaying bravado and swagger. Brandon's parents were thrown for a loop. His mother remembers wondering, why all of a sudden is my son so brave? Brandon explained to his mother that the people around him were his fans. They know me, he said. They love me, these people here. Now his parents didn't understand until they looked around the RV park. Plastered on cars and RVs, on hats and shirts with the words, let's go Brandon. Sheltered from the meanness of modern political exchange, as many children are, Brandon believed that those signs were for him and about him. These signs meant that these people were cheering him on and believed in him. For the first time, he felt that he could do anything. He felt comfortable 
he felt like he belonged. The universe, once a scary, unfriendly place, once that made Brandon feel small and unsure, became a place that was friendly. A place that loved him and believed in him. His confidence skyrocketed, and he has not been the same since. I believe that there is a little bit of nine-year-old Brandon in each of us. We face down a world, each of us, in our own way, that is frightening and overwhelming and isolating. And yet, it does not have to be the end. We have to believe that despite all the stones thrown at birds, all the strangers that would break us, all the hurtful language out there may be directed right at us, we can make a home in this world. We can make it friendly. What the story of Brandon teaches us is that we can find beauty and goodness amidst the hurtfulness if we try. We need to take the ugly and make it beautiful, turn the suffering into wholeness, turn the fear into love. We are not simply born into a universe that is already formed. We are active participants in its unfolding creation. All of us are co-creators together. Is it easy? No. Can we do it alone? Not usually. But that's why we have each other and places like this. When we talk about homecoming, when we come home together here, we are participating in the effort to recreate a world in the image that we believe in. We are making a radical statement that in the midst of a dehumanizing world, we can make a home that is the kind of place we want to live in, full of beauty and truth and love and hope. That we are creating the world we dream about, a place to paraphrase the Lord of the Rings. There is good in this world, and it is worth fighting for. Above me, the work of Faith Ringgold will shine all year. We heard earlier how this picture book showcases a girl who uses her imagine, imagination to make her home here. She flies above her tar beach, sees the sky, sees the bridge, and lays claim to the city where she lives. It is a powerful act of homecoming, of homemaking, and co-creation. Now, I cannot answer Einstein's most important question. I don't know if the universe is inherently friendly or not. What I know is that you and I can make it friendlier. We can make it more our home if we try. I agree with the words of Maggie Smith, who ends her poem with these simple words. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. This is the true work of homecoming. We make it beautiful together. Amen. Hi, everyone, and welcome. My name is Ember Kelly, and I am the Director of Religious Education at the Fourth Universalist Society. 
And this part of our video and audio podcast is a moment where we take a little time to dive deeper into the themes of the service. And I am so excited because today is Homecoming Sunday, which marks the start of our of our church here. It marks the beginning of kind of the return from summer and the start of the full RE education year. And it marks the return of our senior minister from his uh, summer leave. And so Reverend Schuyler, it's so good to have you back. It's wonderful to be back. I missed these conversations. I've missed the congregation. Uh, it's nice to feel like I'm back in the swing of things. Back, back in the saddle, as they say. <laughs> I really appreciated today's message. Um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't sure if it was gonna, you know, when we were talking in the last few weeks, I, I wasn't sure if it was gonna be just like a, a welcome back message, but I really appreciated this kind of diving into, into this specific thought of like looking and finding the good in the world, even when things are challenging. Um, and I, I really appreciated that topic. What inspired that, that pick of this, this, this topic for today's message? Well, I, I think in part the world did, the fact that, that I think so many of us are struggling with how to feel like this is a comfortable space, the world for us, a friendly place, a, a place where we can feel like we belong and that we're safe. Um, and I, I know that there are people who've never felt those things. Um, but I think for a lot of us too, it's been, a, there's been a unique, unique ugliness that has been unveiled recently and a, and a unique threat to really establish norms that allow us to feel uh, that there was at least some ground for stability. And a lot of that has been taken away. And so, you know, in some ways, our, you know, those of us who grew up in a certain time with certain privileges were able to live in a world that was generally fairly stable. Um, you know, we look back to our history, of course, things were always deeply unstable um, and, and deeply under threat. But, uh, but I think these questions about, you know, that, you know Einstein asked, right, is the universe, universe friendly or not? Is the universe, does it want us to be happy? Does it want us to succeed? Does it want us to be safe? Um, is this this world we inhabit, this home that we have to have, right? we don't have a choice, we're just here. Um, is it is it on our side or not? And uh, I think it, that the answer to that question makes a big difference to how how we experience our lives when we go through the world. Um, I don't think it's an easy answer, obviously, and I don't think there's a clear answer, but I think it's a fundamentally religious question that that in some ways gets to the heart of what religion is trying to do. Uh, and and at the root of kind of a spiritual spiritual quest, right? No, it's definitely it feels like a you know a central re a central reason why religion exists because humans have been grappling with you know what what is this world? Why are we here? What what does the universe want from us? Um, and I think that you know is a is a big thing to consider as we um, you know there there's been trauma this these last few years. I think you know that that's important that we acknowledge that this has been societal trauma going through the pandemic, going through, you know, a lot of social turmoil. It's okay for us to kind of feel worn down by that, but how do we begin to find the good in that? If people are maybe feeling a bit worn down, feeling like they can't find that that optimism, do you have like favorite spiritual practices, recommended spiritual practices, maybe other things that that you recommend as ways to kind of slow down and find find that good in the world when it's when it feels difficult? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that has helped for me is just turning off the spigot of negativity and and 
and, and fear that, that comes at us from so many different angles. That's not always easy to do. Some of us don't have that, that, that option. But if there are ways of disengaging from some negative sources, whether it's social media, whether it's being obsessed with the news, not that we shouldn't be informed citizens. I think that's really important. But, but a lot of it, I would say, at least for myself, it, you know, it's when I get overwhelmed by things, it's not often because I'm doing it in, uh, with intentionality and um, with a thought-out practice of staying informed. It's more because I'm trying to, I'm trying to fill or I'm falling into the addictive quality that is social media. And I, I, I think, I think turning off spigots of negativity and then also then refocusing on things that really do give you joy and happiness and make you feel like you are building a life for yourself uh, and not, that's, that's independent of whatever is happening around you so that you and your identity and your sense of self is not tied to the state of the world, which across time and place, no individual is really ever able to control. And so no matter how bad things are out there, if we're gonna try to live happy whole lives, we need to find some foundation for ourselves do that it's 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 not to say that we abandon the struggles of the world but we have to learn how to be true to ourselves and it's a lonely proposition because we only can do that for ourselves um, and so we each have to kind of figure out what that's like what we need to do what does happiness look like how do we feel safe and secure and grounded in this in this universe um, uh, and it, sometimes it has to take precedent over our feelings of responsibility for the world, even though those are very important. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. I when the when you said it, you know, these turn off the spigots. I immediately thought of Twitter. <laughs> you know, uh, Twitter's angry. There's so much anger, and it's so um, and it's so knee jerk. You know, I you go on there and you 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 see the news, and you just know what all these people are going to say. Uh, immediately, they're all going to say the same thing, and they're all—you know—you can predict. It's very rare that I—I I am personally surprised by what the talking heads on Twitter say. That's not to say there's not important information you can learn. It's not to say it's not a good read on the pulse of society, but I think that one has to ask themselves whether or not that is emotionally healthy for you in that moment. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But how do we expose ourselves to emotions that are life-giving rather than like? And I think Twitter <laughs> can be very life draining um, if we're not careful about it. Right. Well, and I also think in the past that, you know, when people talk about being informed citizens, being informed, it didn't, the, the 24 hour news cycle was literally um, invented like in, in my life, <laughs> like headline news and the 24 hour TV news was a thing that came into existence during, during my um, 33 years. Um, and so like that is not like a natural state for humans to constantly just be fed like this bad thing happened in the world this you know like in the past it was something that you could read and stay informed you know so it, it comes with these positives that something like twitter you can really find maybe unreported stories like when the uprisings were happening in, happening in ferguson it was a lot easier to find out information on the ground there on twitter um but then at the same time, it can also just be the source of so much news coming at you just 24-7. And our, our brains are just not meant <laughs> to handle that level of information constantly coming in. We, ne we need downtime. Right. That's right. And, and I think part of it is, too, that, that 
the online world and that 24-hour news cycle and 24-hour social media cycle, it, it puts us in a place of swimming in waters that we can't control. Um, and uh, human beings, when they feel safe and they feel healthy and whole, feel like they have some agency um, over the lives that they lead. And if, if our emotional well-being is fused with the well-being of the world, we're out of control. And the likelihood of us being destabilized along with the world is really, really high. Uh, and so we have to learn to have some self-differentiation from the world. And it's hard to do that if you're plugged in all the time to a world that is, you know, the news cycles and, and social media, you know, they're, they're designed to spike anxiety. That's how you get eyeballs looking at screens, right? And looking at the ads and how you get, you know, they, so, so it's not, A, it's not an accurate representation of the world necessarily. But B, it's designed to manipulate you into continuing to look at it. Um, and that is not a healthy emotional place to be in. And so I think for me, that's a big spot, right? Is how do you build a life that where your happiness does not depend upon the state of the world around you? Uh, and that's really hard to do, um, particularly since so many of our lives are so interconnected now over technology. Um, and there's so many things we feel like we should be doing to make the world better because there's just so much badness out there right now. Right. I guess as a final wrap-up question, were there any books, any articles, anything that you kind of drew from for this that you maybe recommend as reads for others? Yeah, a lot of good poetry. You know, I quote I quote poetry in my in my sermon. Um, the story about Brandon, um, the uh, the Velasco Brandon kid, um, is actually a little children's book, which you can um, which you can order and and read. Called Brandon spots his sign. So this is the the origin of the story. It's a true story, obviously, but. Um, it's a nice little children's book that, that shares a little bit about, about him and his family and, and um, backstory there. Uh, so that's a nice little, nice little book as well. Um, and of course, I, we didn't talk about it really, but the, the Tar Beach children's book is also, um, is also a wonderful piece of literature. It's obviously written for children, but, it's, but children's literature, picture books are really, they're, they're poetry put to pictures. And uh, I think any adult who has a, a lean towards creativity and imagination would appreciate um, Tar Beach by Faith Ringgold as well. Um, it just it's won all the awards. It's just beautiful. It's locally here in New York. Uh, and so I, I would recommend that as well. And make sure to stop in and check out the new art. Um, I, I, I've, seen, I've seen pictures sent to me. I'm excited to get to see it in person today. Um, yeah, yeah, it's up right now. We're recording this in the morning before the service. And, it's right, uh, it's right out, out there. You can see it. It's quite extraordinary, I think. Uh, very different than last year's projection. Right. Uh, but hopefully folks love it. But now you've spoiled our secret that we record this before service, and now everyone will know. <laughs> Sometime, if we have the time. Skylar, it's good to have you back, uh, and thanks for, thanks for sitting down with me today. Thank you, Ember. It's really great to be back with you and, and everyone out there.